Hi guys, welcome back to a Life Education's podcast. Myself and Caroline again, uh, remotely speaking with Dr. Cliff Harvey, who's in New Zealand. Um, Cliff is the probably one of the foremost experts in ketogenic diet, and he's been lucky enough to collaborate with us. Uh, it's morning for me, but it's it's evening for you, Cliff. Good evening. How are you doing? Good morning, Keith. Yeah, doing well. <laughs> yeah, good, good. How's it all going in New Zealand? Everybody's keeping safe. Yeah, it's good. You know, um, we, we've had a pretty good run here, thankfully. We're a long way away and we're isolated. We went, um, you know, went hard early. So uh, things are hopefully going to return to some normalcy to some degree, but I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah. Are you, what city are you in? Are you in a city or are you in the rural area? I'm in Auckland, so I'm in the biggest city. Um, you know, it's, it's really the, the only true sort of world city in New Zealand. There's about 2 million people here, so it's relatively big. Um, but that's, you know, it makes up about half of our population in, in one place. Yeah, kind of similar to, to Dublin in Ireland. I mean, how's morale there? Are people positive? Are people worried? Are people against the idea of restrictions? Like, what's the general gist? I think, well, I mean, you could put it in context because the Ardern Labour government under, you know, obviously Jacinda Ardern is... The poll came out yesterday, I think. It's now the, I think, the most popular government in living memory and she's the most popular uh, leader in living memory as well so that goes to show most Kiwis are firmly on board and they think she's done a great job and the government's done a great job there's always a vocal minority who um, think not Mm. (laughs) but you know it's the the truth is going to be somewhere in between the extremes and you know I, I think that we did an exemplary job considering it could have been far worse I think now that we have numbers that are showing that it's not actually as calamitous as it could have been. Um, But this means that that this is a really good trial run, I think, because, you know, all the people saying, how could we foresee a once in a, you know, hundred or 200 year pandemic, they just don't understand the history of pandemics, right? Because there's been a lot of them and we've all been saying anyone who's involved in research, whether they're involved in, virology immunology whatever have been saying look we're going to have a pandemic at some stage so we've got to be prepared and so you know this has been probably a a wake-up call for people yeah yeah massively and how have you found like because a lot of your stuff obviously is kind of ketogenic low-carb diet which way do you introduce it more ketogenic dieting or more low-carb dieting well it's i talk about the idea of the carb appropriate spectrum and that's really the key because that way we can avoid the dogmatic fights that people have between high carb and low carb. Now I'll frame this in a, at a very recent thing, right? There's a recent article came out from Kevin Hall. It hasn't gone through peer review yet, but he's, you know, one of the leading researchers in the space and he's published some articles that people have considered to be quite contrary to, to low carb. Anyway, his latest article looked at two extremes, basically a very low fat, um, high carb, high fiber diet versus a very low carb ketogenic diet and both pretty good diets. And the results were pretty similar. In fact, the people on the very high carb diet, actually, I think from memory, um, someone might correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they lost a little bit more fat. They didn't lose as much weight, but they lost a, a little bit more fat and they ate less overall. Now that shows us that different dieting strategies can work and we need to start to then pick apart, well, what are the fundamentals between those diets? Like what are the shared similarities? What are they accomplishing? And for whom might they work best? 
So although I'm known as a ketogenic researcher, because a lot of my research has been in ketogenesis and keto flu, you know, we did really foundational research in particularly keto flu in, in achieving ketosis. The broad theme of my research has been carb appropriate. So it's actually been how can we better predict which type of diet someone should be on? And so that's really cool because it means we're not, you know, low carb keto for everything. It's more like what works best for the person because we know that high carb works really well for some people and for some outcomes and low carb works really well for some people and some outcomes. So what were some of the similarities that you found between those two dietary approaches? Well, I think the key, the key really with good dietary approaches that we see across the board in, in research is that they're fundamentally based on more natural unrefined foods and the diets that promote the really negative outcomes are that that typical food environment food that we have nowadays which is based on ultra refined foods now the functional translation there is well what are we actually getting from the diets that are more based in unrefined foods we're typically getting better nutrient repletion right so we're getting better levels of vitamins and minerals and you know various secondary nutrients we're typically getting better levels of fiber um, particularly if those diets are replete in protein and not just sufficient, but getting optimal protein, they're going to be incredibly satiating as well, right? And so the satiety aspect is really important because if you're satiated, in other words, you're, you're satisfied from the food you're eating, you're going to be better at auto-regulating how much you eat overall. So that's going to be basically the biggest mitigating factor in what most people experience, which is you know weight gain over time. The biggest thing to avoid that is to be more satiated so you actually choose to eat less now interestingly with the the very high carb high fiber diets typically they're very satiating because of the fiber but also probably because they're not that palatable right if you are just eating a whole bunch of fairly bland vegetables you're going to get pretty sick of it especially if that's all you can eat and so you're going to regulate your energy down as well so you know this sort of speaks to more than just diet you know it's more than just macros it's how does that affect people and then how does that fit with their psychosocial environment and their behaviors because that's obviously the key thing the best diet for your physiology may be the worst diet for you if you can't stick to it and do you find it's an easy one to sell to people the changing to a low carb ketogenic diet that they can look at this sort of road plan Sorry to interrupt you there. I think it's so popular as well, like particularly recently. Yeah, it's, it's very popular because I think on balance, um, it, it allows the, for a lot of people, the easiest satiety, right? That's what we've seen in our research. It's what we saw in our qualitative research. There's not a lot of qualitative research around because, and, and obviously I haven't done a lot of qualitative research. I've done a little bit. Most of my stuff's quantitative, but there's not that much qualitative research around because people kind of say, well, it doesn't really tell us much. It's how people feel and stuff like that. But as researchers, our group have always said that's critically important because how people feel in a food environment is massive for how they're going to be able to adhere to something. And what we typically find is that low carb is often easier for people because it's, it's a simple idea. You basically avoid these foods and then you have a compendium of foods that you can eat from now because by nature it's relatively or not relatively it's very satiating because typically um, you know those higher protein versions of ketogenic or low-carb diets are incredibly satiating and again it helps with that satiety and that auto-regulation of what people are eating so is it an easy sell 
it, it kind of is nowadays because it's so popular anyway, as um, you know, Caroline said, it's, it's such a popular diet. So people want to try it anyway. And often they end up getting really good results. So it all sort of leads to that cascade of people um, continuing to follow it because they're getting results, they're feeling satiated and they're kind of on trend as well. And is yeah, it especially, sorry, sorry, no go Kate. No, no, I was going to sort of go off on a bit of a tangent there. I was going to ask you, is it really crucial to do the blood test to see the level of ketones in your blood if you're going to enjoy success with kind of low carb keto diet? I don't think so. I think it, it can be an interesting measure if things don't appear to be going well, you know, and that could give us some additional insights into maybe what we could do. Maybe it's not the, maybe in those cases where people aren't achieving ketosis per se, then maybe it's not the best diet for them. Maybe they have some other stuff going on. Maybe they've got a genetic challenge where they can't produce ketones very effectively, which can happen. It's very rare, but it does happen. Um, and it can also be good for people to, to almost gamify what they're doing, right? People want to achieve that. And so that can help with adherence and compliance in those first, you know, week or two, but where it can be equally counterproductive is when people start chasing ketones and the, the best way to push ketones up is to not eat or to not eat and have a lot of fat. Right. And so that can be counterproductive at times because if you're just not eating a lot, but you're trying to get in, you know, as much fat as possible, maybe you're not getting in enough protein, maybe you're not eating enough vegetables. Um, or if you are getting enough protein and vegetables and you're still trying to push your ketones up really high, how are you going to do that? You're basically going to be eating truckloads of fat. And so in those instances, you're basically creating ketones from the dietary fats you're eating. It, it's, there's still going to be a calorie balance issue there, an energy balance issue, and you're not necessarily going to be able to lose the, the fat that you want. You know, I had a really interesting, I've talked about this in lectures, maybe you guys have heard it before, um, but I had an interesting case where they were, that this person wasn't a client, but they called me up and said, I'm doing a keto diet and I'm not getting any results. So cool, fire me through what you're eating and we'll take a look and then maybe we can catch up for a consult or something. And sent me through a diet that looked awesome. I mean, it, it looked like the kind of, the, the, the perfect keto diet, right? You'd put it up on your fridge and say, this is what people should be doing if they're following keto. So I thought, man, something's not right here. So I got back to the client and said, is there anything else you're doing? Because this should be working. And um, she said, oh yeah, I'm also having uh, two tablespoons of coconut oil before every meal so that I can get into and stay in ketosis so I can burn fat. It's like, whoa, okay. So you're taking an extra 90 odd grams of fat every day um, do the math on that. What is that? About 800 plus calories on top of what she was eating every day. And I said, look, if you're taking in that amount of extra energy, you're just not going to lose body fat. So basically she cut that out. The rest of her diet was a, a great low carb or keto diet and started losing fat as you'd expect. Now, did she need to measure ketones? Now, one of the challenges she had was because she was chasing ketones then she, she wasn't actually aware of the impact that other things were having because, you know, we don't go into a magical state of just fat loss when we're in keto. Um, it's basically that we don't have enough glucose from carbohydrate to sufficiently fuel the brain and central nervous system. And so the body needs to create some other fuel and it can do that very well. It creates ketones. Fantastic. Um, but it is still at some level about energy availability and how we use that energy within the body.
And then how, talk a little bit about the, the keto flu. How do you explain, how do you manage people's expectations of that? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question because the simple answer would be when we go on a ketogenic diet, our insulin levels are a lot lower and we, the body's not really used to that. So for a few days with the insulin levels being a lot lower, the body is basically excrete because insulin helps us moderate um, electrolytes and, and, and water volume in the body. We flush out a lot of water and electrolytes. And at the same time, we often don't have sufficient fuel just for a little bit to, to feel optimal, um, particularly for our brain and central nervous system, right? Because we're in that limbo stage where we're starting to produce more ketones. And so we don't have enough glucose to feel great. We don't have enough ketones yet to feel great. And so there's that period of say three or four days where we've got a bit of dehydration, um, particularly sodium loss. We've got electrolyte imbalance and we've got a, a bit of lowered fuel availability. So the, the typical recommendation, which is actually correct, but I'm going to talk about something else, which will hopefully blow your minds, is that we have a little bit of extra salt. We drink a little bit of extra water and we take in maybe some extra fat or something just to make sure we're producing a little bit more ketone to feel better. Now, for most people, this idea of keto flu is actually, it's quite minimal. Most people that we've worked with, and you know, I've been working with keto diets for 23 years, they don't really suffer that much, right? And so it's probably overblown as a concept, but it wasn't really studied. The only references we have to, you know, keto flu or carb withdrawal symptoms, keto induction symptoms, whatever, in the research from a while back was basically, well, we observed that some people had these symptoms. And so we start to get a compendium of symptoms that people might experience on low carb or keto diets. No one had really studied it though. No one had studied how long these symptoms last, the magnitude of the symptoms and what factors were associated with them. So we did it. And we did the first research on keto flu properly because if you, if you looked at the medical research about six, even you know, six or seven years ago and searched for keto flu, there was nothing. And now we've got probably four or five papers that investigate this, this topic uh, in some way. <clears throat> and what we found in our latest research was that in a moderate carb, a low carb and a keto diet, there was almost no difference and symptoms that would usually be called keto flu. So we're kind of like, well, okay, there doesn't seem to be very much of an association at all between sort of levels of ketone in the blood or how much they restricted carbohydrate or any of the factors we might previously have thought would be associated with it. And can you guess what the strongest association was with? Hmm. I have no idea. Yeah, neither total, do I. <laughs> total energy. Uh, really? So it was a, the, the way we could see this was because it was a habitual energy study. So we didn't want them restricting their energy. We wanted them to basically be eating the same as what they were eating in the lead in period where we tracked what they were eating. So they should have been eating the same amount, but as always happens in research, some people ate more, some people ate less, you know, some people started to, maybe they were satiated from the diets. They started to eat less overall. The greater the magnitude of the energy restriction. So the less people ate, the more they experienced the symptoms. So what we would probably conclude from that, or what our ongoing hypothesis would be now that we need to investigate more is that, hey, there might be a tiny, tiny effect from reducing your carbs even more, 
So maybe there is a tiny effect between being on a moderate, low or keto diet, but really the biggest effect is how much you restrict your calories, which kind of makes sense because most of the research that showed these symptoms was on keto diets, but it was also, they were calorie restricted studies or the people ended up eating a lot less because they were typically weight loss studies or in sort of metabolic syndrome, pre-diabetes people. Um, although you probably wouldn't see the same in a higher carb diet, right? So it does have to be some level of carb restriction, but it's probably, the keto flu probably results from any appreciable level of carb restriction when there's energy restriction. So it kind of speaks to an interesting topic that's going around a lot at the moment is the importance of making sure we're properly nourished and we have enough energy, enough fuel on balance. I wanted to, I'm just going to digress a little bit here. I know we wanted to talk a lot about weight loss, but there's some longevity studies that talk about um, the short-term effects of calorie restriction on longevity, obviously not long-term. Um, how do you feel about that? And where does that fit into the whole, we want, to, we want to lose weight and be healthy and also moderately restrict our calories for longevity purposes? Can you... Yep impart some light on this <laughs> so yeah with with the calorie restriction calorie restriction research most of it comes from animal studies and animals are very able to moderate their energy balance right we do it as well but we actually don't do it as as well as animals because we subvert those natural responses, right? What I mean by that is if you starve a mouse, it'll move less and less and less, right? So it will, it will be able to somewhat respond to that calorie restriction. Now the calorie restriction has an effect. It has an effect by increasing autophagy, you know, the breakdown of dysfunctional tissue. Um, it has epigenomic effects where it's basically signaling better cell replication and turnover and those types of things. So there are definitely effects from it. The, the problem is though, is if we're looking at mice and they're the best things to do, the best animals to do longevity research in because they, they only live a very short amount of time. The human experience is very different because we live a long time and it's very difficult to see effects in people. So I think what we typically see when you begin to translate that into the human research is calorie restriction or having fewer calories is typically still associated with better outcomes, but it's just because people aren't overeating and they're not getting that, that milieu of effects that comes from the diabetes problems. So diabetes, obesity problems. And so there are certainly going to be benefits to being in energy balance, but I would go as far as to say what we're seeing time and time again now is that if you're not well nourished, both in terms of the, the small guys, the micronutrients, and in terms of getting total fuel availability and enough protein, hey, I don't know if you're gonna live one to three years longer if you're starving, you might, but you're gonna have a pretty shitty time between now and then. You know, you're gonna feel a lot better if you're properly nourished, and particularly you're gonna feel better in terms of hormonal balance. You know, we've, we've done a lot of, um, there's been a lot of work done on this. We've discussed it a lot as academics. Uh, and really what we're seeing time and time again is that fatigue, uh, immune dysfunction, hormonal imbalance, they really come from not being well-fueled, not being replete in nutrients, and then also from having 
those other poorer foods that create a whole bunch of other stuff in the body like inflammation. Uh, I just, we've got about 10 minutes left here. So I just wanted to just touch on before we get cut off the, so touch, going from the inflammation perspective, how does that affect people? How does a low carb ketogenic diet, how does that affect people with regards to stress management or general kind of brain health? Um, something that might be of a little bit importance in this kind of current COVID-19 climate. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the big things with, that the current immune state is it speaks to a lot of the things that I've been talking about. You need to be replete in nutrients. So we know that there is likely to be, it's not strong evidence yet, but it's likely to be some effect of say, you know, having enough vitamin D. And if we look at all the other things that affect immunity, you know, it's, it's, it's probably, you know, it's probable that having enough, you know, preformed vitamin A and zinc and vitamin C and all those things is going to be really important for immunity, but equally being, replete in energy is going to be really important too, not obviously over-consuming. But then we look at the other cofactor and the strong, the, you know, the really strong association with the severity of illness from something like COVID is with metabolic disorder. So people who are, you know, with obesity, people who are with diabetes, those types of conditions, they're going to have much more severe effects and they're going to have a greater risk of mortality. So Given that lower carb, nutrient dense diets are probably the best intervention for prediabetes and diabetes, it makes sense that they're going to have some impact here. Now, they're not going to be a cure all because if you don't have prediabetes or diabetes and you're eating a really good diet that's maybe higher carb, but it's replete in nutrition, it's energy balanced, all that kind of stuff, that's fine. But when we look at some of the other outcomes, what we need to also consider is that there's no one best diet but there are diets that are really useful for certain outcomes. So you mentioned things like, you know, brain health. Um, we're, we're certainly looking at this growth and all the emerging evidence around like ketogenic diets for neurodegenerative disorders. Ketones are very effective for improving brain health. You know, they provide fuel to damaged brains. They can help to reduce the, the, the damage from things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. They can help us to, to not create and to clear out all those misfolded proteins and plaques that are created in those neurogenerative disorders. Um, there, there's a lot of benefit there. And they're also, by nature, anti-inflammatory and relaxing. So ketones will increase adenosine in the brain, which is relaxing, will help us to modulate the GABA to glutamate balance in neurons, which reduces excitotoxicity. In other words, it's relaxing and it prevents damage to neurons and um, basically helps to fuel brains that have had some type of damage because they may not be able to use glucose as effectively as they once did. So we are now looking at ketogenic diets as being a, a really promising treatment for neural disorders, but also potentially for helping people improve focus, cognition, reduce anxiety, because they do provide that relaxation type property. Um, and even now beginning to look at it for a, a range of reasons for depression and things like bipolar disorder. The one caveat I would have, though, is when you have, say, depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, those types of challenges that can have some degree of anxiety with them, particularly if you have you know, an anxiety disorder, 